All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome to the panel, Justice for All. Uh, this is a panel about indigent defense, bail reform, and other ways to ensure fair treatment for the poor here in Texas. I am Josh Hinkle. I'll be the moderator of this panel. I'm the executive producer of in-depth and investigative content at KXAN, the NBC affiliate here in Austin. We are media partners with the Texas Tribune. I also host a weekly Sunday morning political program right before Meet the Press. If you ever want to watch State of Texas, we talk about issues like this every single week. We have a great lineup of panelists for you today. Over at the far end, we have Chief Justice Nathan Hecht with the Texas Supreme Court. He is also the court's liaison to the Texas Access to Justice Commission. He has been on the court since 1988 and was appointed Chief Justice by Governor Rick Perry back in 2013. To his left, we have Deborah Fowler. She is the executive director of the group Texas Appleseed, their nonprofit that promotes social and economic justice. And she's also a recognized expert in school discipline and juvenile justice. To her left, we have State Representative Andrew Murr from House District 53. He has been in the legislature since he was elected in 2014. And he is the vice chair of the House Select Committee on State and Federal Power and Responsibility. To his left, we have Judge Valencia Nash. She is the Dallas County Justice of the Peace. She has had that office since 2007. And she also sits on the Texas Judicial Council with Chief Justice Hecht and with Representative Murr. And here to my right, we have Shakira Pumphrey. She is exec executive director of the group Just Liberty. And she, that is a criminal, uh, it's a bipartisan criminal justice reform advocacy group. She was also the former senior policy advisor for Texas House Speaker Joe Strauss. All right. I wanted to start with you, Chief Justice, there on the end. Talk to me about the Texas Indigent Defense Commission. It was created with the Fair Defense Act in 2001 to oversee plans that were submitted by the county to make sure they were complying with the basic standards of indigent defense. Where are we with that commission today? It's very active. Uh, judge, uh, Presiding Judge Keller chairs it, uh, Presiding Judge of the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, we're losing our uh, executive director, Jim Bethke. Uh, he's retiring, but he has been there 21 years and he's a, uh, have been a wonderful hand. Uh, the commission works very hard to um, um, uh, check up on uh, indigent defense, uh, criminal defense throughout the state. Uh, this is a knotty uh, issue throughout the United States. Um, one of the issues is who's going to pay for it, uh, the counties or the state. Uh, and uh, the, it, it's a, a huge burden for the counties uh, to pay for. Um, but the state, understandably, not, uh, is not anxious to step up to the bar and pick up the $200 million or so that uh, they would have to to, uh, to fund it. So um, they uh, uh, study uh, indigent defense programs throughout the state. Sometimes they're public defenders. Uh, sometimes they're appointed counsel. Uh, they look at uh, how appointed counsel are selected to make sure that it's uh, fair and that it goes in rotation to lawyers. One very interesting pilot project they just finished uh, uh, maybe six or eight months ago was uh, looking at giving um, indigent um, accused 
uh, a choice uh, in uh, picking who their appointed lawyer was going to be. So they would get uh, like a little blurb about each lawyer and they would pick from a, a list. Um, all of the lawyers are qualified, so really the point of the, uh, of the program, or one of the principal points of it, is to build more trust between the indigent accused and, and counsel. Uh, you know, sometimes um, a, a person accused of a crime is indigent, he thinks the system is against him and it's all stacked and even the lawyer's not gonna help him very much. So this is a way to build more confidence uh, in that. And, uh, it was part of a national study and uh, the results were good. So they're very active. They continue to look at these programs. It's a great group. Um, the, uh, at our last meeting, uh, one of the district judges in uh, Nueces County came uh, and they're gonna implement uh, bail reform in Nueces County uh, just on their own, which the judges can do. Uh, they don't need a statute to allow them to do that. Uh, and she was very well received, and the uh, commission's going to give her some help on that. So it's it's a great group. Great, and I should say, if any of the rest of the panelists want to chime in and piggyback off of what anyone says up here, feel free to. It's your panel. Represent, we'll, representing MERS on the on the Indigent Defense Commission. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I will um, add one thing to that. So uh, serving both previously as a constitutional county judge preparing a county-based budget that relies predominantly on property tax dollars uh, versus now serving the legislature, we see the funding for indigent defense growing at a rate of approximately 10% a year, and that's attributable to a number of factors that others can answer. But uh, I think the last headcount on that, we were at about $248 million a year. So in the biennium, you're talking about a lot of money, and the state funds about 12% of that as a reimbursement grant back to the counties, which leaves the counties on the hook for about 88%. And the big issue there is, uh, you know, counties or local government view that as, look, we're, we, set, we, were, we forced them to set up our criminal justice system and, and financially to support a large portion of it. Um, they're carrying that burden and they consider that to be an unfunded mandate. So uh, the state is coming in as an enforcement arm to try to encourage them to, to, to instill good behavior in the process through that grant program, but at some point, the state does have to look at how we pay for it. And as a member of the Indigent Defense Commission, I have been an advocate of requesting 100% payment by the state, because I think that policy discussion needs to happen. Uh, practically speaking, it's always gonna be uh, the state and the counties paying for a part of it, but uh, we have watched the, the cost go faster than the state's willing to pay. So uh, there, there are some other questions and, and comments we can talk about how to pay for it. But I think, I think it needs to be caught on the public that that is a growing <coughs> expense and it's really difficult to control costs on some of that with the rising population and uh, variations in how we enforce criminal laws. So. And we will save some time for questions from the audience at the end. But since you're talking about funding, um, talk to us about the Fair Defense Fund. What, what has been going on with that lately and how difficult or challenging has it been to get your fellow lawmakers on board with anything? So, uh, and, I, and I think some of the other panelists can speak to this, but uh, more recently this spring, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled two of the items. So at the conclusion of a, of a criminal case, typically there'll be a plea offer or if it went to jury trial, the clerk will present the bill of costs. And so there's always court costs associated with every case. 
So for example, it would be $267.10, and that might be broken down into a list of 10 or 20 items, most of which are state fees that are assessed that trickle back to the state. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that two of those were not related to criminal justice and therefore unconstitutional, but provided a window for the legislature to make a change to that. So uh, I assisted with legislation that successfully redirected those funds being collected to the indigent defense fund. And so we're looking at approximately $16 million a year projected to now be attributable to indigent defense that wasn't there before. And uh, it, it gets us to almost doubling sometimes what the state's putting forward. It's a good step to fund that and really excited to be able to do it. And uh, I think it, we'll have to have another budget cycle to really evaluate the effects of that. What I don't want to happen is the legislature say, oh, we found another funding source, so we're going to step back because for the first time, general revenue was actually introduced into that funding mechanism just a, a budget cycle before. So we need to be cognizant of that. I view that from the spectrum of it costs a lot of money for folks to go through the, the criminal justice system, and the state shouldn't avoid the responsibilities that it is uh, put in place at the local level. You've had to write the budget in your county, so yes. you know how this goes. Uh, Deborah, one of the counties that your group has been focusing on in recent times has been Harris County, and I know that they do have a public defender system, but the courts often instead appoint another private attorney, correct? Uh, well, um, so in, in so there's kind of a hybrid model in Texas of, uh, you know, there are counties that have solely rely on a public defender uh, but there are others that have, as Harris County does, this kind of hybrid where they have both attorneys who serve on what's called an appointment wheel and they have attorneys who work in a um, public defender office. Uh, and so, yes, I think that um, my understanding, and I'm not the expert in my office on this, but my understanding is that um, judges have a choice as to whether they, or not they use the public defender's office or whether they appoint attorneys from the wheel. Uh, and so we see, um, for example, with, um, with uh, sorry, <laughs> juvenile, uh, juvenile cases um, in Harris County that I, I believe the, the majority of those cases are actually being uh, appointed to attorneys who are in private practice, not who are working for the public defender office. Uh, and we still hear complaints from members of the public. Um, we have a partner in Houston to the, um, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition that's been taking a real hard look at that issue. Um, but we hear complaints sometimes about the way that attorneys are appointed, particularly in those juvenile cases. What is the challenge, I mean, with caseload when you have that system in place? Right, well, and so um, what, what, we've, what we've seen, and this is, this is through our partner, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, that's collected and, and taken a look at the data, is that some of those private attorneys are handling caseloads that are well beyond what would um, typically be um, the, the recommended caseload limit. Uh, and so when that happens, obviously you are, um, there are concerns about the quality of representation that's being provided. You mentioned juveniles. I wanted to um, ask Judge Nash a few questions about this. I know in recent sessions, um, there has been a real push to reform uh, truancy, and that did happen back in 2015. Um, it was one of those Class C misdemeanors that was uh, sending juveniles to uh, municipal and criminal and uh, JP courts like yours. Um, you know, do you feel like that there is any future to uh, decriminalize 
other Class C misdemeanors for juveniles in the future? I think we're moving in the right direction, Josh. I, I really um, love the work that we've done so far with decriminalizing, especially um, you know, conduct cases and ticketing students in schools. Uh, so what I've seen is that right now uh, we are uh, currently meeting in the Judicial Council to discuss other classy misdemeanors that probably should be treated uh, the same way. Uh, so I'm very pleased with how we're moving in the right direction as it comes to decriminalization. For the, those people that might not, might not know, what is the um, negative you know, consequences if a juvenile is sent to a criminal court for that type of crime? Sure, well there are, there are many consequences. I mean, you're talking about a juvenile who, if you have a uh, disorderly conduct case or you have ticketing um, and you have a class C on your record, you're talking about college admissions, uh, you're talking about your ability to have a job, um, just a lot of negative consequences come from ticketing students. And then the part of being subjective. So you have maybe one school district uh, that ticket students based on this level of conduct and another that look at other means of maybe um, deterring that type of conduct in a different way uh, than ticketing. And so we would see a disparity um, across just, for instance, Dallas County, uh, where maybe in the southern sector uh, there's a large number of tickets versus in, in East Dallas or, or West Dallas. And so we don't want that to uh, negatively impact students' ability to uh, be progressive and to move forward, especially when it comes to education and the ability to obtain a job. So there are a lot of unfortunate negative consequences, whereas you know, now um, the great thing about it is those cases are, are required to be expunged um, from the student's record. So no court should, in justice courts, <clears throat> excuse me, should not have any of those cases uh, still outstanding. There should not be um, anything that would reflect uh, negatively on a student thus far. But I think that, Josh, we really do need to move forward and looking at the other cases and how we can um, kind of, kind of um, shore up on those and, and make those kind of across the board where we can take care of all of those um, Class C uh, misdemeanors so they can have the same um, more positive effect or just some level of providing some uh, programs where we can look at some other means besides criminalization. And one of those Class C's is curfew violations. I know that that's something that Devers Group has worked a lot here in Austin in recent weeks. It is, and I, I would just add that another um, negative consequence for a juvenile who, who is um, convicted of a Class C misdemeanor and, and is ordered to pay a fine, and this is for all of the cases excluding now truancy, um, at, but still including some of the school-based offenses because despite the um, incredible um, changes that were made in 2013 as a result of the Judicial Council's leadership, a child can still be charged with that offense. They just can't be ticketed. But one of the consequences that we haven't talked about as much, and it came out during the session when the truancy reforms were pending, is that once the child turns 17, they can actually be jailed for non-payment of those fines. So even if they got the ticket, um, were convicted of that Class C when they were 14 years old, um, three years later, it can include this consequence that we've all been talking about as a debtor's prison consequence for, for something that happened when they were a child. Um, and yes, so ju uh, juvenile curfew is one of the issues that um, Morgan Craven, the director of our school to prison work, has really taken on in Austin uh, and has just done tremendous work with a, a group of advocates in Austin and with the Austin Police Department to make changes 
Um, the curfew ordinance was up for renewal. Um, that is uh, something that is common in cities across the state. Uh, and for the first time, there, it, um, Morgan and others raised the question as to whether or not it should be renewed. Um, we had in Austin a daytime curfew as well as a nighttime curfew. So despite the fact that we decriminalized truancy in 2015, there are still cities around the state, um, most of the big, uh, you know, Dallas, Houston, um, uh, some Corpus, all have uh, these curfews that will still allow a child to be um, ticketed, in essence, and convicted and then ordered to pay a fine if they are not in school during school hours. Um, so we've been, it's, uh, there, I think there are 29 organizations in Austin and the Austin Police Department that have come together to um, talk about alternatives. Um, and um, the daytime curfew was not renewed. Um, on Thursday, they will be taking up the issue of the nighttime curfew. But through this process, the Austin Police Department has come to the point that now they are no longer recommending that the nighttime curfew be renewed. Uh, so we're really pleased, and we hope that that's something that can then be taken to other cities. Originally, they'd said that it was a safety deterrent, and um, now they've kind of made an about-face saying perhaps that's true, but there might be better ways to um, tackle this problem other than sending kids to court. Right, and I think it's a great example of the way that um, when um, these conversations take place in communities that um, uh, some of the... Um, punitive measures that we've seen uh, applied to juveniles that are really remnants of a time when we were taking a much uh, different approach to public safety, um, and one that wasn't, at that time, um, very well informed by research, um, you know, we can really see people reach a different conclusion and, and come together to make a, a, better, a better choice. Mm -hmm. If I may offer a counter to that, and, and that's just generically, the judge talked about truancy and the decriminalization of that. I represent 12 counties and rural parts of the state and a, a couple of dozen JPs. And in visiting with a lot of those and with school administrators and others, their perception, especially in, in smaller rural communities, is oftentimes you will find a JP in a truancy issue before it was decriminalized. Uh, being the last stop, and you would have a parent or a grandparent or guardian come to them and say, I'm having trouble controlling my child. And when we talk about children, it's typically an age of junior high or high school. And they look to that judge and that encounter with a formal court system as the last opportunity to salvage some control over their child. And a lot of judges, at least from my part of the state, view that as a loss of a tool in their tool belt. Not necessarily to punish the child, but attempt to instill some control in their behavior because the parent or guardian was unable to do that. And, and, and I have taken the approach that we'll see uh, over a course of years some of the information that comes in to see if that does make a change in the new law or whether they still might need a tool belt in the future. And so I just counter that with when it's reviewed, we got to make sure that uh, we don't worry so much about the stigma for young people that we remove some of the tools that are that could be there to help a parent or guardian control an unruly child. And I don't mean it in a way that we want to penalize them as an adult. 
Sure. You have any response to yeah, that? I was just going to say, and I'm all for um, judicial independence and autonomy to, to certainly make decisions. Um, but I think that as we have so many diversionary programs in the adult system, we also need to have diversionary methods in the juvenile system. And I think that would help us with uh, some of what uh, Representative Murr is talking about, where you want there to be some diversionary and um, programs before you get to the court level. I mean, that should be the last stop, you know, and we need to have some things that go on before that. Well, how do you handle things in your court when you're faced with this issue? Well, with, what I do is I look at uh, county programs that may be available. Um, every every situation can be different, Josh, and so you do get grandparents that certainly um, don't know what to do with the child or how do you get them in and out, and so we have what we call um, some case managers that kind of monitor uh, the students at the school and see how it's going. And so we kind of keep them on a plan um, to kind of report back and see if things have improved or not. Um, because we're always looking for methods before fines and court costs to try to at least correct the behavior. I mean, I'm, I'm more about let's see what we can do in, in a positive manner rather than stick it to them and that be it. Because again, just given, you know, find, convicting them is, is not going to solve uh, the underlying issue. And then what we found is that there are other causes. Um, there could be uh, some level of, of homelessness. We've, we've seen that. Um, we, I've had parents who, who are living in the car with their child. I've had, um, there's been some intellectual disability with the child that hasn't been discovered. Um, you know, we've seen some level of mental illness, not only uh, with the child, but also the parent. Um, there are just various um, things that you have to consider. And so there is not a one-size-fits-all, but we have to really look at each case, case by case, and you kind of figure out, you know, what program is available to this family versus this family. And I think that you have to have some interventionist uh, to be able to determine that because that's not going to be something where the JP, you know, can go to the school and, and figure out each, each child. Of course, I'm in Dallas, so of course we have lots of lots of people in the community, but I think that it has to be where we have programming that someone specifically is going to deal with the family to determine what are the underlying issues as to why the child may not be attending school or why the child is engaged in this sort of conduct. And I just want to say, when we say decriminalize, that doesn't mean the child's not still going to court and that the judge doesn't have uh, the ability to intervene in a situation where the child may need an intervention. Uh, it, it simply means that uh, in this case, the child is not going to end up with a criminal conviction or potentially a fine or jail time for, for truancy, which is a status offense. We really felt strongly at Texas Appleseed that, in fact, the old system was probably unconstitutional to, Im to impose adult consequences on a child for a status offense. Um, was probably not even within the realm of what's legally permissible. And Texas was a real outlier in the way that it was handling um, it, really all juvenile class Cs, but truancy in particular. And what the Judicial Council- uh, We have Wyoming. Well, that's true, Wyoming, <laughs> Wyoming. Um, and so what the, what the bill did was essentially try to bring it, us more into alignment with the way these cases would be handled in a juvenile court setting. With so many of you know, these types of um, offenses, we've looked and seen that um, the populations that are often greatly affected by this are minority populations and the poor, which is what we're talking about today. Is, is this is what you've seen with your group's work, and, and how, do you, how do you address something like that when it's such a big topic? Absolutely, and one of the things that Just Liberty, um, the reason that we were founded was to come in and build um, a list of people and supporters on this issue. And um, certainly, this disproportionately impacts uh, 
children of color um, and um, people that don't have the financial means necessary. Um, part of our outreach targets certain communities and brings them into the conversation in a way that their voices can be heard. And um, so that's, that's part of what Just Liberty is here to do. Now, I know your organization, Just Liberty, has also um, had a great focus on bail reform. It's been one of the topics you've talked about. And I know it was a big topic when we talk about criminal justice in the past session. It didn't pass. It didn't get as far as some people wanted. Um, talk to me about that. You know, what, what was the problem with it going through the legislature? And what do you think groups like yours will do to try to get bail reform passed next time? Well, uh, we made it through the Senate. Uh, we got stalled in the House. Um, I think it, we ran it to the 11th hour and finally got it out of committee. I mean, to be honest, we would go into offices in offices that felt one way one minute. Soon after, the bail industry had a heavy lobby. And by the time we got there, they felt a different way. I think people were a little bit concerned about the risk assessment tool and knowing what the outcomes of doing something different would be. Um, but at the heart of this, and I think uh, Representative Merck can talk more about specifics as well as uh, Deborah with Appleseed. And of course, Chief Justice laid it out in the judiciary speech as a priority. Um, but at the heart of this, and something that we're trying to remind everyone of, is that this is eroding at the very value of not of our overall system. Um, it's difficult for someone, and one of the examples that the Chief Justice used during his speech was a lady, a grandmother, I believe, that uh, was caught shoplifting, and her bill was set at $150,000 for stealing um, clothing. And so the, is there any value at holding her um, in jail that's probably over in our overcrowded jails um, and tagging her with $150,000? Are we any safer because we do that? Um, and then, too, when we do that and a person who can pay uh, might be there for something violent, they can pay and they can just walk away. What does that do for the way that we view one another? I think, I think that impact is something that we need to be really concerned about. Um, when you can watch someone pay their way out of something and you're criminalizing poverty, what impact does that have on our value system and our feelings about one another? I think we're eroding away um, our sense of humanity. Chief Justice, what did you and the council specifically recommend when it came to bail reform? Well, um, the uh, um, social uh, studiers have come up with a valid, validated uh, risk assessment uh, mechanism that you can uh, find out a dozen or so pieces of information about a, a criminal defendant, uh, somebody who's been charged, uh, and uh, score the uh, risk that they will not return to court on the assigned date, that they will uh, uh, reoffend, that they'll uh, recidivize, commit another crime, uh, or that they will harm somebody, uh, some innocent person. So those are the three reasons uh, to detain somebody. Uh, and right now, the uh, uh, the uh, determination what the bail amount should be is made largely on the nature of the crime, and that's it. It's just whatever you're charged with, this is what the bail is. Uh, never mind that uh, your ties to the community are such that you're going to come back. The grandmother, this was a story in the Dallas Morning News last December. 
uh, never mind that, uh, that she was only doing this because she didn't have the money to buy clothes for her grandkids, and she shouldn't have done it, of course, but this is not something that is, she's not going to rob a bank next week. Uh, and um, so using that tool, um, judges can, and uh, officer, officers who help them can predict more um, accurately whether uh, the person uh, should be released or not uh, on, his, on the person's own recognizance so that there's no bail set. Um, and that's good for the person. It's good for society. We don't have to worry about uh, supporting somebody who's lost his job or his family because he's been in jail. It's good for the taxpayers. They don't want to pay for jails for people that uh, don't uh, don't need to be there. So it's just, there are just lots of good aspects to it. Um, and this is not news. I mean, it's all over the country. Uh, the, the federal courts have been working on this for 20, 30 years. Uh, other states are a long way along. Um, so this is a way to really make a, uh, a big difference in the pretrial criminal release system uh, that really uh, helps a lot of people. Representative, you were there in the House. I mean, what happened? Why didn't it go further? So, so I carried the bill in the House, and uh, also with a background as a magistrate and also uh, currently serving as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, what I've found is a lot of people, especially your policymakers, are not fully educated about the criminal justice system. And just like most of you sitting here today, most of us have not been arrested and gone through the system. And so without a firsthand experience, it's really hard for us to to put, put all of those words into play to make it mean something. And so I, I find that it's a lot, a lot more time and investment in educating policymakers. Because at the end of the day, a person gets arrested for a, an offense. A magistrate is supposed to show up and go through certain rights with them and set a bond amount. The bond amount can be a cash or a surety bond, which is a bail bondsman. Or, or they can even do a personal recognizance bond, which is we're going to let you out. You don't pay any money. You promise to show up for court. You don't show up for court. We'll issue a warrant for your rearrest. What we find, especially for felonies, is that the majority of your jail populations in the county level are folks that couldn't make that bond amount and are sitting there waiting for their case to be disposed of, either with a trial or more likely with some plea offer. And that plea bargain can take months. And so they sit there, and while they're sitting there, the county is on the hook for paying for their medical needs. Uh, believe me, they have a lot more time to write and communicate with their court-appointed attorney, which also takes time. And, and so, but, but oftentimes what we realize in, in, in the law, we don't require basic information to be provided to the magistrate to make a, a more informed decision. So the magistrate is not required, to, there's no way for them to know, has this person failed to show up in, in, for court six other times? So now I need to have a high bond because the purpose of bond, as the chief said, is to ensure they show up for court or to make sure they don't reoffend. It's a public safety measure. So if we find someone who, it's a first time offender, the likelihood of, of reoffending is very low, uh, they're rooted to their community, then maybe they don't necessarily need a bond at the same time as Shakira pointed out, folks that have the economic means to do something, they quickly make bond even though they have a high level of reoffending or could be a danger to the community. And so we need to make sure those tools are in place. From a policy-driven standpoint, there's really two factors here. One is 
uh, the value of the individuals and their rights because if they can't afford something, and a lot of magistrates will have a template that they'll apply. doesn't matter who you are. If you got charged with this offense, I'm setting your bond at this amount. And that's, that's offensive to, to some people who couldn't afford it. The other side of the coin is that cost driver to counties. Why are you keeping a bunch of people locked up when we don't necessarily need to pay for their health and their meals uh, when we know they'll show up for court and come up with an alternate program that, that's more efficient with tax dollars? And so I think you're going to see this is uh, it's like a big tree, and it's going to take several swings at the ax to make a, 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 an enormous policy change. The judge, on final thoughts, the judge referenced Nueces County, and I think you'll see some other individual-based counties choose to voluntarily go out and, and try their own program. And with that, we'll have data that comes back, and that will help getting a room full of policymakers to better understand what's going on. I think that data will show some savings and some efficiencies in the system. And I'm really excited about that. I look forward to working on it more. Yeah, just because it's not happening on the state level doesn't mean you know individual counties or anything can't come up with a system that might work for them. Have you seen this around Texas? Is there a particular place that's working well? I think Harris County and Deborah could probably speak more to that than I could. But one thing I wanted to piggyback off of the representative's statement about them being there for 24 hours, think about what's happening during that time that you are held there. You're disconnected from your family. You're probably going to lose your job. Um, and then I think studies show that once you've been there any longer than 24 hours, you're less likely to actually come back to, uh, for your um, scheduled hearing. So just all of those things are reasons to be mindful of, of why we shouldn't. Not to mention uh, other costs that come in because if someone's in jail for even a few days, you may have a CPS-related issue with child care. They, they lose their job and they're unable to make child support payments. Uh, it, it cascades into uh, more costs in the system that nobody's really spent a lot of time analyzing. And so we're upending someone's life when maybe there's not a, a need to do that. Harris County's doing... Not to mention that this is a, a democracy in the 21st century and we shouldn't be uh, detaining people uh, when we don't have any colorable legal right to do so. It's just wrong. Deprivation. Perhaps the most compelling reason, right? <laughs> you know, I, I want to um, note that one of the other barriers to, to perhaps making more progress is the poor quality of data that we have available to us for um, people who spend time in jail in Texas. It's really interesting to me to see the disparities, in fact, between the data that we collect um, and that's reported to the state for juveniles and that that is collected and reported to the state for adults. Uh, for juveniles in Texas, we know uh, how many kids are in post-adjudication facilities in every county uh, that has a post-adjudication facility, how many kids spend time in detention in every county that has a detention facility. We don't have the same level and quality of data for adults, and it's a real hole. It makes it uh, difficult for us to advocate with the clarity that we, we need to be able to advocate with. Uh, Appleseed has, the only way that we've been able to get some of the data um, that we have for our debtor's prison project has been to literally send an open records request to uh, each county uh, that we want to collect data from. And then what we pull back sometimes is an enormous bill 
because they tell us that in order for them to give us really even just very basic data on the number of people who spend time in jail for a Class C misdemeanor, for example, that they're going to have to hire a, a data person to come in and manually pull that data from their system. I think we've gotten estimates of like $50,000 from some counties. Um, and even when we're able to pull back data, the, the quality of it varies from county to county. We have a really comprehensive analysis from the Public Policy Research Institute of Texas A&M on the bail bond issue. It's outstanding. It compares two counties, one county that uh, uses a, a validated risk assessment tool, Travis County, and one county that did not. Uh, and that's where some of our best findings come from. But really, as a state, we should be doing a better job of collecting and making available to the public this very basic data about who's in our jails and what are they there for and how many of them are able to bond out and how many of them aren't and who's going for a class C and what do they look like and you know the really basic information that we have for juveniles we don't have for adults. Judge Nash how are you handling bail reform at, in Dallas County? Um, well you know from the justice court level we don't have um, as many of those kinds of issues because, at, again, at the justice level, um, those are the low-level offenses and the Class C. And so in Dallas County, um, what we've done is try to provide other means um, of doing things. And so, of course, uh, recently, you know, the payment plan options in, in letting defendants know that there are other means to pay your fines and court costs through community service. Of course, we do time served. Uh, so we're trying to offer a lot of viable options so that, you know, of course, uh, jailing is not um, our priority. And, of course, the overcrowding issue, uh, they're probably not going to, to really take you in anyway um, on the uh, tickets that the justice courts uh, take care of. So we're just looking for other means for those things to clear people's records. And, and I guess it's just kind of like the chief said, Josh, we just have to get back to the presumption of innocence. And make sure that we're not jailing people until they have been proven to be guilty of those crimes. I know with indigent defense, mental illness is often part of the conversation. Yes. Um, I think this past session with things like the Sandra Bland Act, that was highlighted a lot more with the criminal justice system. Um, Chief Justice, where do you think we go next to make sure that the people suffering from mental illness are treated fairly in the justice system instead of just being treated as criminals? Uh, the um, Judicial Council that we referred to several times, this is a policy-making arm of the third branch, um, and they uh, finished a study uh, several months ago recommending that uh, several efforts that were resulted in legislation, some, uh, some somewhat helpful. Uh, but the big recommendation is to uh, form a commission that uh, the Supreme Court would form, and uh, probably the, maybe the Judicial Council would oversee, uh, to look at these issues uh, across the board. So a lot of times um, these uh, issues involve uh, judges and courts, they involve uh, probation officers and um, pretrial people that are working on the case. Uh, they involve the medical community. Uh, they involve law enforcement. It, it's really, uh, it's really multifaceted. So we need a commission like this where we can bring in the principals uh, and let them talk about better ways to handle these uh, these situations. 
We did this about um, 10 years ago with uh, children's cases, children welfare cases, CPS cases, uh, and uh, we, the Supreme Court formed a children's commission, and it's been very successful. Um, and it now is kind of a uh, go-to uh, policy place and implementation uh, uh, group uh, for uh, handling those uh, cases. So uh, we've got a pattern, the mental health uh, commission off, off of that, and uh, we've uh, found a little money to start it. Um, there are a lot of other groups in Texas that are interested in this. The Meadows Foundation is prominent. Um, and we're going to try to make some very uh, pronounced headway in the next uh, uh, months and, and year. Representative, mental health, mental health seemed to have a renewed focus in the session, this, this past session. You know, Do you feel like we're going to continue that conversation into the next session, or have lawmakers really done enough for now? So uh, I, I was privileged to be able to serve on the Select Committee on Mental Health. Uh, that was uh, appointed during the last interim, and it was given the charge to focus on many of these issues, and we saw substantive legislation come through that related to some of them. I, I don't know if there would be a freestanding uh, committee in the future on mental health. I think that the ball was moved forward a little bit. You're going to see implementation of that, and then folks are going to need to come back and rework that. I, I think funding of our state hospitals still remains to be a challenge. Uh, so paradigm shift real quick on that, and, and, and this happens a lot, especially in rural counties, because they don't deal with it on a very regular basis. Uh, but you have a lot of reoffenders and, and what, I, what they call super utilizers in the system, that at the local level you'll actually have officers in the court system personally know these individuals and they don't have another mechanism to deal with them other than send them to the state hospital to try to get them back on track, and they go through that system reoccurringly. What we found was if you look back in the old days of our state hospitals, you will see that most of them were located in rural areas of the state. And they were large compounds. Combined, our 10 state hospitals have over 1,000 acres. And it's because it was a place to live, to grow food, and to die. They still had cemeteries on it. So oftentimes, before technology and, and, and medical advances allowed, we just would send someone to live there. And we've changed the way we do things now. So that also requires a revamping of that entire system. And that's going to take some time because that's steering a paddle shift. Um, and, and that way of thinking and the, the, the catchment zones that we've created around the state for those doesn't necessarily mean that we have to continue that avenue. And so what we're finding is uh, there are some ideas out there that at local levels fit that, that composition. So what works well in Dallas County doesn't necessarily work well in Kerrville and Kirk County. And so, but being able to unite law enforcement and the judicial branch and mental health providers all in one, literally like a crash team, has gone and made great strides. And so that keeps someone out of the court system uh, and that also gets them the treatment they need immediately. One thing we found in rural areas, a lot of times, law enforcement were not well suited. But our, our, the way that we've designed our system is a, a, a doctor or a medical provider is not the one that says you need to do uh, uh, mental health detention. We put law enforcement at the forefront of that. And so if you look at the way the statute's organized, 
Um, yes, you could go to a physician, but really it's law enforcement that can do a warrantless detention and take them to a mental health facility. And that's kind of frustrating because sometimes we don't necessarily give them all the tools they need. And you have a person sitting in the back of a patrol car being stigmatized because it's not a criminal matter. And then they get arrested for perhaps a reason that is not the primary reason. And now they're in the justice system as a criminal. And then we actually had issues where if it was a serious offense at the county level, they're not competent to stand trial. So now they're stuck in a county facility waiting to go to one of our state facilities to be re rehabilitated if possible. If they get there, they're rehabilitated. The moment that happens, they ship them back to the county jail. Well, the county jail may not have the assets or the, the ability to keep them rehabilitated and keep them competent. And so we see this cycle, and I have it locally. My sheriffs complain about it. I get somebody back with barely any notice. I don't have a physician on call. They're sitting in a center block room waiting for their trial date that's still weeks away. Boom, now they're incompetent, so I've got to wait for them to go back. And so you'll see we spend a great amount of time, space, and money doing that. And so I think that requires a revamp in the system. And it's going to take a number of different legislative sessions to get there. And I've talked way too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to open it up for questions, but one, one more question for each of you, and feel free to chime in. With so many important issues that Texas is facing right now, um, you know, you and I were talking before the panel that indigent defense might not be the, the sexiest of topics, right? <laughs> um, how do you get people, lawmakers, groups, advocates really interested in making sure that this doesn't, you know, go to the wayside? One of the things that Just Liberty is going to be doing during the interim is uh, working with the Texas Fair Defense Project headed up by Executive Director Rebecca Bernhardt. We're also going to be working probably closely with Deborah and Appleseed. Um, we're, we're hoping to do um, a campaign, a judiciary um, campaign, of, and of course, I'm not the subject matter expert there, um, Becky Bernhardt is, but she, and she's the one that's engaged in the litigation in Harris County on the issue of bail reform, and so we're hoping to launch that campaign during the interim. Um, the other thing that we're continuing to do is just keep people informed. We have a massive uh, email list. Last session, we generated over 60,000 emails to the Texas legislature on a variety of topics, including Sandra Bland. And yes, Sandra Bland did go back and do a lot in terms of mental health, but we want to go back and just to put it out there, get that um, no arrest on uh, non-jailable offenses, right? So um, just keeping the community engaged and building a groundswell of momentum going into the next legislature. Judge, same question. Yeah, I think that um, she pretty much summed it up and uh, Representative Murr said it best is that you have to give that information. And so when you're equipped with knowing, you know, the impacts and the effects and consequences with the lawmakers, with our public, and we keep it um, in the forefront, I think that we can certainly um, move in a positive direction and make more positive changes and improvements that are required. Also, given examples like uh, Chief Justice did at his uh, state uh, address and when people realize the impact of of some of those examples that are real life examples and, and to really show uh, people exactly what's going on and how uh, people who are unable to afford don't have the access to justice that they should have and require. Representative? Uh, I, I go back to cost. So at the end of the day when you're talking about your money, it's taxpayer dollars, uh, we're looking at a growing cost there and it's, it's not declining. So. Dealing with that, that's not going away. You're going to have a lot of 
uh, comments from 254 counties because they all have to pay this. And it becomes a greater and greater challenge for them. And so they, they have an expectation that the state of Texas is going to step in and participate in that. And if you have a program set up where it's a grant reimbursement program and we use carrots instead of sticks to encourage those counties to, to uh, reform the ways they do things or to follow the, the, most, uh, the best practices that are out there, at some point, that carrot's not big enough for those counties to want to participate in a grant program, and they're just going to wash their hands of it and say, we've done all this paperwork, you're, not, you're, you're, you're giving us up to 12%, we want, uh, we're going to just do our own thing. And so I think that you're going to have to have the state step up into that if we're really going to continue that current uh, structure that we put in place. Deborah? So at Appleseed, we're big believers in uh, evidence-based approaches to all of the uh, public policy issues that we work on. And so we think that in addition to the stories that really put a face on an issue, that the data is critically important. And so um, whenever we start to work on a new issue, we publish a report that is usually very data heavy, also tries to pull in some of the personal stories from the people, the stakeholders that we meet and interview over the course of our research. So I think that the data and the um, the information that, um, that, that drives policymakers is so critical um, has to be collected uh, and, and reported. Um, so we're, we're actually on, on both debtor's prison issues and on the bail uh, issues. We are in the process of updating the data that we um, reported in Pay or Stay, which is the debtor's prison report that we co-published with the um, Texas Fair Defense Project. And we hope to be able to um, bring and shed some new light on some of those issues over the interim. Um, and we're also working um, uh, with the, um, an advisory committee to the Juvenile Committee of the Texas Judicial Council on the remaining Class C issues and whatever other juvenile issues that the um, council opts to take up in the interim. Uh, and one of the things that I am proud of in Texas and that we've really seen across the nation is that these issues are bipartisan issues at a time when we can't unfortunately say that about too many of the public policy yep. issues that we work on. Um, but we've got great partnerships with conservatives, with, uh, with uh, Democrats. I mean, it, it really see the spectrum of, uh, of uh, political spectrum working on these issues. Chief Justice. And we appreciate the public interest in these things, um, but uh, it's incumbent on the third branch to manage its own house. And uh, uh, so whether we uh, are prompt, I, I would rather that we weren't prompted by the community to, to, uh, to do better. I would rather that we did it ourselves. And that's what the Judicial Council uh, is very intent on doing it. Um, the mission of the justice system is not to be too simplistic, justice. And uh, so we, uh, we really need to, uh, the participants in that uh, really need to continue to look at the way we manage our business uh, to make sure that that's what we're achieving. That's what we're going to do that. Okay. All right, if there are any questions, please come up to the mic. We have a few minutes to do that. Let us know who you are and who you want to ask, answer the question. Uh, my name is 
Haley Stewart. I am a uh, pre-law student at Texas Wesleyan in Fort Worth, Texas. And my question is actually to the entire panel. Um, I am a former police officer, mental health police officer. So, um, and before that I was a jailer as well. So each of these individual issues that y'all have talked about, I've seen firsthand from the debtors' prisons to people being arrested for truancy to mental health issues. One in four people incarcerated have mental health issues that our, our justice system isn't giving them justice for. They're being sent to prison and being sent to jail for something that they have no control over. And a lot of times there is the trifecta of socioeconomic, um, people of color, and uh, mental health or drug addiction, homelessness, everything else. So my question is, is what do we as a society need to do to keep people like representative on mental health committees in order to continue to tackle this? Because it's not going away. Um, we have counties that are avoiding sending people to the state hospitals or can't get people into the state hospitals. And then when they do come back, there's no transitionary program to help them reintegrate into society. So, you know, I, I see it in so many levels of they have a socioeconomic issue, they have a drug addiction issue, they have a mental health issue, and we're criminalizing them for being mentally ill. So what do we need to do as a society to keep that committee going and to fund it? Because that's more of an issue to me personally, seeing it every day, than having committees for gun rights and having constitutional carry. Why are we spending our money on that when we have people one in four in prisons that need more money there? So what do we need to do to keep you on those committees? I can take a so, as you probably are aware, approximately 20%, and I've checked with a number of the jails in my counties, approximately 20% of the folks that are currently confined in a county jail are receiving medication for, uh, receiving psychiatric medications. Uh, and so, that in and of itself is, is alarming. Whenever I talk about paradigm shift, and, uh, you know, in college they'd have a course, and it was literally imagine yourself in a big cardboard box. You're very comfortable, you can see all the walls around you, you know where everything is, and those are the limits of the, your thinking. At some point, you push open the top of the cardboard box, and there's a whole different perspective outside. And once we step out of that cardboard box, we have shifted our paradigms. And whenever I talk about an antiquated system of, of 10 state hospitals, and the idea that we send someone to a state hospital, and then there they receive treatment, and then they come back and they're all better, it's more difficult now because of the advances in technology. And yes, oftentimes, especially in rural Texas, that is the only form of treatment that's out there is we send them there, they get on a medication. Three days, 10 days later, wherever that is, they, they, they're released with good hopes and good intentions that they stay on their medications. Few times, there's a facilitator there to help make sure that they're enrolled in whatever program it is, make sure they can afford their medication. Maybe they lost a job or they lost their children, and so the, now there's an extra challenge for them with that, uh, depending on if they received a criminal charge, even if it wasn't necessarily appropriate, they've got to figure that out. And a lot of times they don't have the resources available for that. And it creates this cycle of a super, super utilizer. At the end of the day, policymakers have to realize a paradigm shift, just like we have with a mental health police officer. That concept was not the norm no. just a, a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And it still is not the norm in a lot of areas That's because right. the, you can't get the funding or you can't get the level of training. So it's going to be incremental. And I'll let the, the chief talk a little bit about uh, what the mental health committee might actually do as an advocate for uh, certain change in that, in that spectrum. Uh, it will. and. Uh, 
looking at various aspects of the problem. Uh, I think uh, how can you keep it going uh, is to engage uh, positively. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, politics these days, besides being a little um, sharp, uh, is uh, also uh, kind of distracting. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of good to be done uh, in uh, just trying to make positive progress, whether you're working on data uh, and trying, you, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't argue with the facts forever. And when you, when the, when the facts can, when, when you get some facts, uh, then it's easier to make some policy decisions. I, you know, I, I just think we have to stay engaged. I think one of the things that the Select Committee on Mental Health in the House did that Representative Murr was part of, they didn't just sit in the Capitol. They were going all around the state and seeing the state hospitals and the jails and firsthand. And I feel like that was a very progressive step for a committee to do that in the interim. And of course, hearing from people like you, that always helps as well. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Linolia Robinson. I'm a BSW student at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Uh, bachelor's of Social Work. So, um, and my question is, um, someone mentioned the 10% increase in um, indigent defense. So I'm asking, um, have y'all found out why there's such an increase each year? And then if so, or if not, is there any, uh, is there any prevention instead of finding out a way to, to compensate for the increase instead of just prevent it from happening? Well, so I, the Indigent Defense Commission is, is uh, probably looked at the increasing cost, so. Uh, the, the cost, uh, I think, mostly just because things go up. Uh, the indigent defense is a very difficult uh, issue because um, the, the clients are difficult uh, frequently, um, uh, and the lawyers uh, don't get paid a lot, and they handle a lot of cases. Uh, there uh, is a, a, lot of, um, a lot of burden on the court, so it's just difficult to uh, maintain a good balance uh, of all of those uh, factors. But why it really, why it goes up all of a sudden, or so, it, it's hard to tell. And I would also suggest that, you know, um, we've come a long way on indigent defense in, what, 16 years since right. the, uh, the Fair Defense Act was passed. Um, and I think that one of the things that you start to see as, as awareness grows uh, and as uh, more judges and stakeholders are educated about the importance of quality indigent defense is perhaps an increase in cost. Um, you know, Texas had a long way to come at the point that the Fair Defense Act was passed in 2001. The, the, there were, the problems were, I mean, we were known nationally for uh, lawyers falling asleep in court during uh, death penalty trials. And so, and so part of the increase in cost is just going to come with, hopefully, with increase in quality. Okay. And combine that with population growth in the state. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there that want to be Texans, and so they keep moving to the state, and that's great. We welcome them. But you, can, you add that growth along with a realization of making sure folks are following best practice in the law, and so we've seen that, that steadily climb. And, and so I, the second part of your question, I, I don't... If, you could oh. restate that. I forget what. Uh, I asked about prevention. So preventing them from actually um, 
doing the crime instead of, I love that y'all are um, improving the, the quality of the defense, but I'm talking about prevention for them actually doing the crime so that they won't even have to need the quality care or the quality defense. Is there anything in place to prevent that? Jobs. Mm -hmm. Right, and I, and I think, um, you know, I think, I think there may need to be sort of a more comprehensive look at how that's done effectively and how we uh, ensure that um, progress that's made is continued. I mean, there has been a lot of work thanks to um, some of the work Shakira's done for both um, Just Liberty and also for Texas Criminal Justice Coalition and other organizations have done to really um, show the importance and the cost effectiveness of diverting people away from the criminal justice system. And I think we, we are in a better place now, certainly, than we were even 10 years ago. But there's, there's more to be done on that. And really, um, the, it's, it, if you're talking about preventing crime in the first place, uh, there probably needs to be a more holistic look at some of the economic drivers, uh, rather than just waiting until the person gets to the courthouse door. In, in, in just 10 seconds, so my personal pet peeve, uh, we, ha we have something we call victimless crime, and, and a lot of that, those are drug offenses. Mm -hmm. Majority of the cases that I handle are methamphetamine cases. They're not really victimless offenses. Mm -hmm. The victim is the user and their families and their friends. And their, so, so really, if you want to try to try to take a chunk out of that, that's a huge chunk in our system. It's are we educating young people at the right age about the dangers and making them aware of those things because once they get into that area, it's really hard to pull them back. And sometimes they have to hit rock bottom. And that uses a lot of state resources and time and puts them in the, in the legal system. So that's my pet peeve. And one more last thing is that um, the Judicial Council in, in our committee now, we're working on trying to have a link of all those diversionary programs because yeah. we believe that a lot of people are not aware of where to look for them, where to find them. And so just knowing um, what resources that are available is also very helpful. So we're trying to compile that as well. Uh, to piggyback off of what the representative said, too, there are over 7,000 people um, in jail on what's called state jail felony for possession of uh, less than a gram. And most of that is just treatment-based. And the characteristic of addiction is the habitual nature of it. So these people are recycling in and out of the system. And so you're right. That's a huge cost both to personal and family and then to the state as well. For an Thank you. All right, we have run out of time. I appreciate the questions from the audience. These guys will be available if you want to talk to them afterward. Thank you to our panelists. Appreciate every one of you being here. And thank you for attending Justice for All. Enjoy the rest of your day at Truth Fest. <laughs>